0: Hi and welcome to a special episode of LiveWire's Rules of Investing. For one last time, I'm your host, Patrick Polk, and today we'll be looking at some highlights from the last few years of the Rules of Investing. This will be my final episode of the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to host the show since its inception in 2017. Thank you all for listening over the last four and a half years. I wouldn't have been able to produce the interviews that I did without a wonderful audience to share them with. You'll be left in safe hands, though. David Thornton, who recently joined Livewire in the role of editor. He's a passionate investor and content creator who's worked with Alan Kohler, as well as Money Magazine and Sky News. He's excited to take on the challenge, and the editorial team here at Livewire are ready to help make that happen. For now, I've put together a few highlights from the five most popular episodes of The Rules of Investing. The first highlight comes from my October 2021 interview with Nick Griffin, Chief Investment Officer at Munro Partners. The episode has 16,180 streams and downloads to date. This was Nick's second appearance on the show, and the big topic of the moment was decarbonisation. In this highlight, he told us about two thematics, throwing up opportunities, and shared one stock with exposure to both. Over the last six months or so, at various stages, there have been a lot of different kind of sectors and and stocks that have sold off, particularly if you're going back kind of earlier this year, there was a, a lot of growth sectors were selling off. I'm curious which of your areas of interest are now giving you the best hunting grounds for new opportunities, you know, in light of some of those more attractive prices.
1: Yeah. So from our point of view, I mean, yes. So so obviously this year has been, you know, last year was a very strong year for us for the fund and for, you know, I think funded more than forty percent last year. Um, so you know, this year is very much that mid-cycle transition year as we tighten rates and there's inflationary pressures and and all these things are, are going on, which are you know causing you know volatility um, in a number of our in a number of our stocks throughout the year and you know this growth value stuff that you've been talking about earlier. Um, If you take a longer term view and decide that, you know, that the rates environment should stay reasonably stable and we are in a low rate environment and ultimately I get the inflation story, but ultimately it should be transitory um, in the future, then, then, and even if it's not, like even if rates do back up and it creates this big correction, you know, ultimately it's not going to, it's important to remember it doesn't change, you know, interest rates don't change who wins and loses in the long run. They just change the price you pay for them. Uh, And so, you know, these these movements are creating opportunities for the winners because the winners will still be the winners. Um, It's just a function of what price you buy them at. Um, From our point of view, the two areas I'd point you to where there's been volatility this year, but but we're actually just getting to the point of acceleration, which is when we get really excited. Um, would be uh, the climate area of interest. So so this is the energy transition. So the decarbonisation of the planet is clearly accelerating. Um, these stocks had a huge run last year as you know Joe Biden got elected, and and it really paused a bit this year, but ultimately the opportunity is still very much in front of them. Um, so the climate area would be be one I'd flag. And the other one that's actually done well this year but has struggled a bit recently, uh, but again we think is on the cusp of acceleration, not deceleration, uh, would be the semiconductors. Um, the semiconductor space is, um, is is one where probably, as we move into 22, you know, an area where where you're going to see significant earnings surprises into the future um, and the stocks are not expensive um, from our point of view.
0: Taking a slightly longer term perspective, not so much looking at the volatility that we've seen in the last year or so, but more just thinking about, you know, the next five, 10, 20 years. And I recognize the answer may be the same as, as to the to the last question, but which of the areas of interest do you think have the biggest growth opportunities ahead of ahead of them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely I mean it is the answer is the same as the last one. It is it is the climate and the um and the and the semiconductor area. The other area obviously is payments where, where there's a lot of you know disruption occurring at the moment. You know, we're sort of at this handoff for fintechs where cash just disappears altogether and there's a lot of interesting fintech companies coming along um, that look quite interesting. But let's and you know that that takes you into cryptocurrencies and all these other things. So so you know, there's obviously a lot going on in payments, there's a lot going on in decarbonization, and then there's and then there's the semis. Um Clearly, decarbonisation is the big one. Um, and so let's let's just talk about that one specifically. Um, you know, if we think about, you know, I said earlier I talked about Apple, you know, it's the first smartphone coming along in 2008 and, you know, where that's taken us to. You know, back then, you know, we are investing in Apple and smartphones were 10% of all phones sold in the world today, you know, and feature phones, you know, Nokia's, Ericsson's were like 90%. Um, as we sit here today, electric cars are roughly 3 to 5% of all cars sold in the world today. Um, renewable energy is less than 20% of all electricity generation globally, and electricity is actually only 20-25% of the energy mix. Um, so, so, so if you truly want to decarbonize the planet, uh get to net zero by 2050, and that's the goal, then electricity is a, as a share of just our gener- energy generation has to more than double, i.e. oil has to be replaced with electricity, if that makes sense, to power all these electric cars. And then renewable share of electricity has to go from 20% to 80%. So, so, you know, some simple math tells you you're getting between an 8 and a 16-fold increase in renewable energy over the next 30 years. Um, You know, there are a plethora of investments you could look at here, whether it's wind turbine generation uh, OEMs or whether it's solar equipment, or whether it's um, the semiconductors. If you think about, you know, the net zero objectives that are that a are, that are BHP is putting in here in Australia with a sustainability report, you know, how on earth are they going to do this? Uh, you know, they need to retrofit their buildings to be net zero. They need to change their lights. They need to fix up their heating, ventilation and cooling systems. And then you you just overlay that across every company on the planet that is all committing effectively to the same goal. You know, so it's an easy goal to say, an incredibly hard goal to do. Um, and so I suppose I'd just leave you with this, is we think it's a roughly a 30 to $50 trillion expense to decarbonize the planet. Um, and that's a $30 to $50 trillion revenue opportunity for the companies that can provide these solutions. Um, and so from our point of view, you know, this has potential to be as big, big an opportunity as the internet was for the last 20 years. And so that's the one, that's the one that we sit and look at today and go: this is this is what excites us about the next 10 years of doing our job.
0: Well, Could you tell us about a a growth stock that you think is being materially mispriced by the market today? Just give us a bit of a thesis rundown why why you're attracted to it and what they do.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, so you know, I'm going to combine the two I talked about here: so semiconductors and climate here. Um oh, sounds and, perfect. <laughs> and so, so as you as you solve climate, for instance, um, you know, we all know it, it's going to involve a lot of electricity, as I said, and it's going to a lot involve a lot of battery power. Um, lots of people are looking at lithium that goes into batteries or nickel or or battery manufacturers or Teslas, etc. Um, the most under, or probably the most overlooked area of what's going to solve this is is, is power semiconductors. So these are semiconductors that sit at the core of of how you transfer power, you know, so how you take power from one place to another, how you take battery from a battery to manage that power load into driving a drivetrain, if that makes sense. Um, And so you used to have these things as sort of cheap components that would sit inside a fridge or they'd sit inside a, you know, an electronic toy, for instance, that ran off batteries. And now they've got to sit inside these really big things, like electric cars, or they, or electric buses, or, um, you know, or, or, or you know, battery-powered renewable energy facilities. And so their total addressable market is effectively exploding. Um, the companies that make these things are, uh, there's four of them in the world, um, and and the biggest one is in Germany called Infineon. Uh, and so that's probably the one I'd mentioned today, but th- th- there are other ones. Um, and they they make these they make these power sim They're really hard to make. Uh, it's a very complicated process, uh, and one has to pretty much be in fitted in every solar, every wind turbine, every um, every electric car on the planet. Um, and so everyone's reading about the semiconductor shortage in the world today, um, and thinking it's a short-term thing, and, 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 and we don't think it is. Um, and so to give you an idea, if you speak to Infineon, you know the, the semiconductor content that would go into a normal internal combustion engine car would be $160 per car. The semiconductor semiconductor content that goes into an electric vehicle with some autonomous driving features will be $1,600. Um, and so as we go through this transition you know you're effectively going to get a tenfold increase in their addressable market um and and, and infinian is is the best of these plays but and trades at roughly 26 27 times earnings uh, but some of the smaller players in the place only trade at sort of 15 16 times earnings and so from that point of view you know they become, like all semiconductors are, and the reason why we like them so much is they become the weapons manufacturers in the war or the, or the shovels in the boom. And so if you believe in decarbonization and you don't want to get hung up on some solid-straight battery concept or some you know, electric vehicle manufacturer that doesn't produce a car and you just want to buy you know, the, the shovels in the boom, the biggest shovel on the whole planet is Infineon and it's listed in Germany. That would be the one I'd point to.
0: The second highlight comes from my December 2019 interview with Angie Ellis, a highly successful private investor. The episode has 16,657 streams and downloads to date. I invited Angie on the show as she'd consistently beaten the rest of the field in the Fairfax tipping competition, published in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald each week. In this highlight, she's given us an overview of her research process what she looks for in companies, and how she uses social media to get an edge. Let's talk a bit about that research. I'd like to hear about your approach and how you think about investing. Could you just maybe in, in a bit of a, a nutshell, you know, kind of 15,000 feet view kind of thing, tell us how you approach long-term investing?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, I def I like companies. I-, I like companies that derive most of their income from global operations. I'm always focused on that. Uh, I like companies that have got growing, recurring revenue, enviable corporate culture, and tailwinds. Definitely scalable business models, um, with barriers to entry. I think just my experience with my business, with having competitors come in like they did, I'm always looking out. the competitive environment for my long-term hold. So even though I I put a bit of effort into researching the company and making sure I'm keeping up to date with their news. I'm definitely always keeping up with what their competitors are doing, and and I'm quite active on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I'm quite happy to send messages to um, competitors of companies that I'm holding shares in, and just find out information from them, and just um, even follow them on LinkedIn and Twitter. they the competitors, just to make sure that there's they're not you know gaining market share or they're doing anything too interesting. So. I, I, that's, a, that's a big focus. Uh, I think that's really important to focus not just on the company, but the competitive landscape, because I had that experience. So yeah, I de- definitely my biggest positions in that portfolio, like LaVissa, Afterpay, IDP, Education, Serco, and probably CSL and Iris. So I've held those shares all quite, for a long time.
0: What's your um, kind of view on a, a approach to valuation? Is it something that forms part of your process? Do you Do you like to use, if so, do you like to use ratios? Do you go all out and do something crazy like a discount of cash flow? What's your, how do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I definitely look at uh, their growth potential. I don't don't focus too much on the valuation, current valuation, because I think a lot of these companies will, will keep surprising us with, with the growth, with the global growth and often for a company that's very scalable like that where, you know, they can white label their product and they can get it out to more customers like a company like Serco. Um, it's, it's hard to value.
0: Yeah, we've <laughs> seen that a lot with, I mean, the, the prototypical example, of course, is Amazon, yeah. which I remember looking at Amazon at about $250 a share and going, no, nah, it's yeah. way too expensive. There's no way I could pay that that price for it, but- yeah, here we are. What is it, $1,500 a share yes, now, I think? Something yes. like that. Yeah,
2: well, my my daughter, who's 17 now, I think when she was 14, she told me to buy her some Amazon shares. So I, at the time, I thought, you know, they're incredibly expensive, and she's done very well from them. I think she's got five of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's better than, better than... It's five more than i bought. <laughs>
2: Seemed a bit funny to buy five shares, but okay. But yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's always funny looking at those US shares with those massive nominal values, Amazing. you know, hundreds of. I mean, CSL is pretty much the only one you see on the on the Australian stock market like that. It's uh, it's, yeah. it's it's funny. I've never quite understood what I think it's purely just a psychological difference, and people are just used to here seeing lower numbers next to their share because it, right. no it makes no difference. But makes no difference. Yeah,
2: and uh, and when I. Meet a CEO or anyone from a company, or uh, anyone who's running a business with their hosting data. I always ask them who they're hosting, and they always say Amazon Web Services. Like it's just always a question. I Like you know, what do you use for your CRM? Like I want to know if they use Salesforce. So I'm always asking these bizarre questions of people. You know, what do you use for your accounting software? <laughs> like you know, I just want to know. You know, for the, for all these businesses, you know, all those sort of questions, just to to see you know what businesses are emerging in that space they're rather you know, hosting services that are gaining market share and it's a good way to find out.
0: Yeah, it it works. I I do a little bit of the same thing myself but often it'll be with things like retail and, you know, consumer products. I'll go out and, Mm. you know, ask friends and family members about their experiences with products. I know I'm a bit late to the party but I finally uh, got around to using Afterpay for the (laughs) first time just a couple of days ago to to buy a Christmas present and um, it was – like I knew I knew it would be pretty easy to use and and set up, but even knowing that just the 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 smoothness of the whole process was was really quite um, surprising to me,
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Afterpay was, is is probably a good example about how I think about investing that way too because um, I came across Afterpay because oh, a friend of mine broke her knee after a bit of a night out and um, so I had to go and help her in this high-end clothing store because she couldn't move around the store. So I... I had to go into the lay-by room and try to find things all day in the lay-by room and I'd never worked in retail in a shop before and it was absolutely impossible for me to find anything in that lay room and all day people would be calling or popping in to check on their lay-bys. So in that day she was so busy just managing the lay-bys and she only made one sale that day and it was when I popped out for coffee for five minutes. So I even missed the one sale that she made but she was flat out the whole day just managing all the lay-bys. And so I just knew that Afterpay would be huge because it would solve that problem. And and I know for that high-end clothing store, when they put in Afterpay, they stopped doing lay buy altogether and it sa- saved them a lot of time.
0: That's fascinating. I've not heard that uh, kind of aspect on it mm. before because, you know, I know the, the transaction fees for yep. Afterpay are actually on the high end of things, yep. certainly more than you'd pay for like MasterCard or Visa, yep. but if you can – Remove that whole kind of cost center yep. from your business, not to mention, you know, increased basket sizes and yeah. increased completion rates and things like that. You can certainly see the, uh, it's got a, a fairly strong value proposition to the. Yes, um,
2: it was. It was amazing. I just would never have guessed that so much time and effort and how hard it was (laughs) to manage the laborers. I didn't even realise that was going on. But if you worked in retail, you would definitely have been across that. And, yeah, at the time, too, my hairdresser kept telling me about Afterpay. She was absolutely obsessed about it and she would just talk about it nonstop. So I did get into Afterpay just after the IPO and I followed that story pretty closely. And uh, if I've, I've come across some people who work at Afterpay, just like say at parties or different events, and I will say, what's it like to work at Afterpay? And they'll just rave and rave about it. Like you won't be able to get away from them. They'll just rave and rave about how great it is to work there. So I think they've totally nailed that corporate culture.
0: The third highlight comes from my February 2020 interview with Anthony Abood, Portfolio Manager at Perpetual Asset Management. This episode has 18,046 streams and downloads to date. We recorded the episode just as COVID, or coronavirus as it was known then, was starting to rear its ugly head, though the market had yet to take notice. In fact, the release of this episode perfectly marked the top of the pre-COVID market. Over the month that followed, we witnessed the fastest bear market in history. In this highlight, Anthony discusses two high quality companies that he wanted to buy if the market sold off. Well, before we get into our favorite questions, we've spoken a little bit about how stocks are pretty expensive out there at the moment, and it's a little bit hard to find some great opportunities on the, on the long side. So, tell me if there was a big mate, like a, a serious correction, that started tomorrow and you know let's say for, for the sake of argument you know market down 20 25% with stocks selling off the board uh, selling off across the board what company would you be most keen to own that looks too expensive today
3: look nothing more certain than death and taxes <laughs> and two stocks which i sort of i sort of like uh, but I, I just can't get I can't get the stack up. Is uh, invo cares one? Uh, I think they're, they're executing what is going to be what is quite a problematic. Um, oh not probably what is a fair bit of catch up capital. But they're sort of modernising uh, the industry. Um, but it's nice. It, it is a, obviously clearly a steady a steady business. Um, and there's a scarcity. There's an element of scarcity as far as. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, scarcity factor in these businesses. Uh, the other one is is, is zero. Um, I find it too expensive. Now their execution has been excellent. Um, they're um, they've done a very good job. Obviously, you know, obviously fending off my up in Australia. Um, it's every one thing I like doing when I'm analyzing companies is speaking to customers, and um, it's hard finding people who don't like uh zero. Um a lot of small businesses I speak to, they're sort of uh very complementary. Um it'd be interesting to see whether or not my op can actually turn the corner under private equity ownership and start um you know improving their offer uh and, and properly competing but but uh, that's probably you know, an answer to your question there are two companies I look at. Um Invacare probably balance sheet's a little bit stretched but um if the that were to fall, yeah, 20, 30 percent In line with the market, that's probably something I'd I'd, I'd dust off the file on.
0: I was wondering whether Anthony had ended up buying either of the two stocks mentioned, so I reached out to him this week. Here's what he said: Yes on Invocare and no on Zero. It's a tough question because you never know what is going to crash. Due to the fact that interest rates fell through the floor, you didn't get a massive opportunity in these long duration names like Zero during that sell-off in March 2020. They didn't get cheap in my view. We did buy into the Invercare capital raising at $10.40 in April 2020. We did well during this period by buying companies which were more in the eye of the storm and whose share prices fell 50% plus, like AP Eagers, Crown Casino, Event Hospitality and Oil Search. We bought all these companies with the mindset that while we didn't know what they were going to earn in the next year, We knew that they had a strong enough balance sheet to withstand a two-year hard shutdown, and they were trading at material discounts to mid-cycle earnings. They've all generated good returns for our unit holders since. Thanks to Anthony for providing that little bit of colour for us there. The fourth highlight comes from my May 2021 interview with Jeremy Grantham, co-founder and long-term investment strategist at GMO Investment and Asset Management though Jeremy is probably best known as the man who called the Japanese equity bubble, the tech bubble, and the subprime mortgage crisis. This episode has 35,961 downloads and streams to date. In the highlight, Grantham explains how value outperforms growth in periods of high inflation. Understand that you founded GMO in 1977, but you actually started in asset management several years before that at Battery March Financial in the late 60s. Now, no investor that I've ever spoken with before has experience with investing in that period of high inflation in the 1970s. Could you tell us what it was like managing money through that time and how did it shape your philosophy as an investor?
4: Well, after 1974. Um, value had a massive run. The uh, the the factor, if you will, value was about as cheap then as it is today, or as it was last November at, at the lowest point, and it had a, an incredible run from 74. Through uh, into the mid nineties, so 20, 20 years, where we win out of three out of four years, and the losses would be half as bad as the average gain. So it was a license to steal. If you were a value manager, all you had to do was show up for work and and win. And uh, we had a pretty good discipline. Um, we um, we rotated out of Stocks that were still pretty darn cheap into the cheapest ones we could find. So we always kept the portfolio ultimately cheap. We ran a very tight portfolio of 20 stocks and all US. And uh, it was uh, shooting fish in a barrel, to be honest. The competition was weak. Uh, the big banks were in disgrace. Uh, the nifty 50 bubble of 68, 72 caught them in uh, what they called one decision stocks, like Coca-Cola, <coughs> Johnson & Johnson, stocks that you only had to make one decision because you would never sell them. And uh, there was a great um, a bubble, really, uh, between 65 and 72. They ran and they ran and they became uh, 50% overpriced uh, by, any, by our best dividend discount measure. And that's the only quality blue-chip bubble that I've seen, There've been growth bubbles, as we have today for the second time in 2000, was a growth bubble. But a quality blue-chip bubble, there's only been one ever, and that was in the 65-72 era. And so every bank who owned the pension fund business, by the way, uh, and they owned the rich individual business. So... JP Morgan, it was then Morgan Guarantee Trust, and, and an, another five or six New York banks ruled the roost. And they all had identical portfolios Coca Cola and IBM. And uh, at Battery March, we had a portfolio of Great Lakes Dock and Dredge and Twin Disc Clutch, <laughs> Hartford Steam Boiler Insurance and Inspection Company. The only company that ever had an annual report with no footnotes. (laughs) And uh, they were much cheaper. You could get half the PE for the same quality uh, and the same growth rate. And so it was, we just butchered them. Year after year, we'd beat these banks by five or 10 points a year. And so we grew like a weed. And uh, Battery March went from nothing in eight years to a couple of billion, which was a lot of money then. And then in the following six or seven years, it became the biggest independent counselling firm in America ahead of uh, Capital Guardian uh, in uh, institutional business.
0: Do you think there's a direct causative link between the inflation period that we saw in the 1970s and that period of value outperformance that you referred to there?
4: There should be, arithmetically or mathematically, the uh, higher the rate, the more the dividend counts, and the lower the rate, the more the growth counts. So in in a... Uh, In an era where rates drop lower and lower, the um, two things happen. There's a bigger and bigger premium for high quality, part of the discount rate structure, and there's a bigger and bigger premium for growth and, um, and, and value underperforms. And then when interest rates rise, it flips. So since interest rates were rising, And not only were they rising, but they were from time to time very high indeed. Um, Dividends really, really mattered, and value was king. So that is what should happen, and that's actually what did happen. And you could say the same in reverse. Uh, Following following the mid-'90s, as the rates seriously were administered by the Fed, driven lower and lower, and by global circumstances too, the uh, growth stocks kicked ass, our ass, <laughs> <laughs> to be precise. <laughs> the final highlight comes
0: from my October 2021 interview with Brandon Munro, CEO of Bannerman Resources and chair of the World Nuclear Association's Nuclear Fuel Demand Working Group. Brandon was one of three guests that I interviewed for a three-part special on uranium last year. This part has had 31,523 downloads and streams to date, but across all three parts, there's been more than 72,000 downloads and streams. In this highlight, Brandon explains what the medium-term uranium price would need to be to incentivise sufficient production to come online and meet demand. Do you have a sense for what you think the incentive price would need to be to motivate enough projects to go into production to actually meet demand? Well, yes, I do.
5: Uh, We model this and I'm also very involved in the World Nuclear Association's uh, working groups that model demand and supply and secondary supply. And the reality is that to bring on sufficient supply over the next several years, this price is going to need to settle long-term at around $80 and potentially more if we start to see uh more interesting demand numbers coming out of decarbonisation, if we start to see small modular reactors playing a big role, if we start to see green hydrogen produced from nuclear power increasing demand, if we start to see some of the political shackles on nuclear power loosened, or for that matter, if we start to see China uh, enlisting nuclear power in the way that I feel they simply have to if they're going to have any chance of achieving the decarbonisation goals that they're looking at. So the way that we think about the world and the way we think about uranium pricing is that uh, to achieve an equilibrium into the medium term, it needs to be around $80 or more. And into the long term, well, we're just going to have to watch demand, but there's potential upside from there.
0: Well, that's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Patrick Polk for Livewire Markets signing off.